week we took uh, we took a week off from our sermon series that we've been doing in John, uh, and I, I don't know about you guys. If you were here, I had a blast. We if if you weren't, we did this whole thing on Pentecost, and we had music from all around the world. Bernadette serenaded us with Hawaiian music, and we had Galena doing a, a Russian piece with her sister, and then Wayne and Joan led us in an African piece, and. And as good as the music was, the food was better. Like, you guys blew me away with all the wonderful cuisines from around the world. So that, that was so much fun. But this week, we're going to get back into our series called A Year in the Life of Jesus. And we're looking at basically a chronological year in Jesus' life, John chapter 2 through chapter 4. And uh, we're just going to pick up where we left off two weeks ago, right smack dab in the middle of John chapter 3, the scripture that uh, Rachel just read. And what I want to do first before we dive into this text is just kind of set the scene. So we're going to cover the first three verses and just kind of see what, what's going on here right now. So after these things, after Jesus was with Nicodemus, remember that was the last message, his disciples, uh, he and his disciples came into the land of Judea and he was there spending time with them and baptizing. And John was also baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was so much water there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Now, so what's going on here? They're in the countryside. Uh, it's kind of arid down by Jerusalem in the Jordan River. So they went to a place where there's actually some water. This uh, Anon, which is by Salim. Anon actually means spring. That's kind of interesting. Uh, good name for a place that has lots of water. So they're going to where the water is. And apparently Jesus and or his disciples are baptizing. Now next week we're going to be in John chapter 4. And there's going to be this very explicit clause that says, But Jesus wasn't baptizing. His disciples were. I don't know. I don't know if he was baptizing here or not. But the point is that Jesus' disciples probably were under Jesus' authority. So Jesus' movement was into baptizing people, and so was his cousin John the Baptist. And they're up there dunking people and doing stuff. And then there's this little aside that says, For John had not yet been thrown into prison. That's kind of interesting. In the other three gospel accounts, there's a lot written about John the Baptist and how he was arrested by King Herod and then he had his head chopped off and it's this whole big deal. John the evangelist, the guy who wrote the book that we're in, he doesn't mention anything beyond this about John the Baptist being killed. And here's just a little interesting note then. I think that John, the author of this book, assumes his audience already knows about the other Gospels. And I say that now because you're probably going to forget, but I'm going to bring it up in several weeks when it's going to matter in some different verses. So I'm just saying that John is assuming his readers probably have some idea of the other Gospel stories. All right. So, you got Jesus and his, and his disciples are baptizing, and John and his disciples are baptizing, and that's the background. And now, just like any good story, enter the tension, right? Next two verses, enter the tension. Therefore, there arose a discussion. That's never a good thing in, in the New Testament, by the way. This word for discussion is always some kind of gossip or some kind of argument. So, therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with the Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, you know the guy who you have testified, behold, he's baptizing, and all are coming to him. All are coming to him. So there's really two points of controversy here. The first one is some kind of dispute over purification. Now in Jesus' day... In fact, not even just in Judaism, but in that culture in general, the ancient Near Eastern culture, 
these rites of purification were a big deal. It had really nothing to do with hygiene, this bathing and washing, but it had to do with um, boundaries. Okay? Now, I could, in fact, I've been bored for hours this week studying purification, and I'm not going to do that to you. It's very complex, all the different reasons that they did all this stuff, but let me just sum it up in a nutshell. The reason for purification is one thing. To declare a boundary about who's in and who's out. Okay? It's to declare a boundary about who's in and who's out. So these different groups would say, well, you have to be baptized this way with these words in order to be included in our group. Okay? Now there's different competing groups at this time. There's different Pharisees who have their own theological ideas about what it means to be pure in God's eyes. And then you have this other group called the Essenes. Maybe you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. This was the group that probably wrote those scrolls. And they were very ascetic, like kind of like monks. And they lived out in the desert. They were hardcore. And they had their ideas about who was a real Jew and who was acceptable. And then you've got John the Baptist who is doing his form of baptism. And lots of people are coming to him, we've, we've learned earlier in the Gospel. And then apparently you've got this Jesus movement, and they're doing some baptizing. And the dispute seems to be maybe about him, because there's this other Jew, and they're talking to John's disciples. And what I learned is, anytime you have the two parties in a discussion, quote-unquote, it's usually gossip. And gossip doesn't happen when the third party's there. So they're gossiping about somebody. Well, kind of the main guy in this book is Jesus, right? So they're gossiping about Jesus, I'm inferring. And I wonder why they would be doing that. Well, this whole series so far has told us that Jesus is absolutely destroying common thought about what purification really means. You remember the wedding at Cana and how the the poor young couple ran out of wine. It would have been a lot of shame on them. What does Jesus do? He defiles the jars used for purification to make wine. The next sermon was about Jesus cleansing the temple, the very center of the Jewish religion. And he said, no, the way that you're doing it is not honoring to God. Purification doesn't just happen in the temple, it happens through me. Last time we got together and talked about John, it was with Nicodemus. Remember, Jesus said, you are the teacher of Israel, and you don't understand these things? Jesus is saying, even the highest religious leaders aren't necessarily in the club. You have to be born from above. All of these stories lead us to to this conclusion, that Jesus is saying purification isn't necessarily a religious system or a certain baptism. Purification comes through faith in Him alone. That's good news. That's good news. And that's why they're upset. Because He's exploding these boundaries on them. Okay? So there's a second point of controversy. And it has to do with John's disciples. And Jesus' popularity. Jesus' popularity. We learned earlier on in the Gospel of John and in the other Gospels as well that John the Baptist had a real season of almost celebrity. He was out there, this crazy guy in wild clothes, and, and all of these people from Judea and, and Jerusalem, the city, were coming out. Even some religious leaders were coming out to be baptized by him. And imagine you're a disciple of John the Baptist, and you're thinking, this is, this is really cool. Like, I am in the limelight of lots of amazing things that are happening. They're kind of riding the coattails of John the Baptist's fame. And now this guy Jesus is on the scene, and and more people are going to him. 
And I wonder what they're thinking. They're jealous. They're jealous. And it almost sounds like a child here because they said... Now, I'm totally reading into this. I'm just going to say it right now. But I imagine that they're almost whining, saying, Everyone's going to Jesus. You know how when you're a kid and you, you, you know, over-exaggerate everything? Like, everybody else is doing it. Well, it's not really true. In fact, we just learned in verse 23 that John was still baptizing people too. So certainly not everyone was going to Jesus. But he was taking some of these people and, and maybe these disciples of John were jealous about that. Like, what if our fame goes away? Okay? So the second point of controversy is competition. And sadly, if you just think about it, it still happens in the church today. In, in John's day, in Jesus' day, there was this competition over the Essenes and the Pharisees and the Baptist, John the Baptist and, and Jesus. And in our culture, it's the same thing. We disagree on small theological issues, and so we'll, we'll break up and form a new denomination or a new Christian sect that has it the right way. Well, I think that the Scripture is going to say that that's really a ridiculous way to look at it. And I think we have a lot to learn from John the Baptist about unity and about how to discern truth. How is it that John is able to stay cool? Well, let's find out. Starting in verse 27 going through 30, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it's been given to him from heaven. I'm going to keep saying this because it's, it's kind of hidden in the text. Whenever you say from heaven, wherever you see that red in here, that's a really fancy way, a, a very respectful way of saying from God. Okay, so a person can't receive anything unless he's received it from God. <clears throat> here we go. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. John's response is absolutely amazing. It's with humility. It's with humility. Just as countercultural in their day as it is in our day. You know, in our day, we kind of mask humility, like uh, these famous athletes who, uh, you know, they interview them after the game if they hit a home run or they win a championship, and they'll always, like, be like this with their big diamonds and everything. And, and then they'll say, well, it's not really about me. It's about the team, too. And it's this, this false humility, right? But, like... It, we all want our props. And, and the same is true in their day too. Honor was such a big deal. If they could receive honor, that would be great. But John just deflects everything. And really, John the Baptist is showing himself as a man of great integrity. Because from the very beginning, we know that he, he has been saying, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not this. I'm just here to point to Jesus. If you recall in John chapter 1, early, early on, verses 6 and 8, there came a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. Now, he was not the light, but he came as a witness to testify about the light. So John's just being who he is. I'm not the guy. I'm just there to point to the guy. 
And then he, see, he tries to break it down for him and he uses this wedding analogy. He uses the wedding analogy to show three things. Who he is, what his role is, what Jesus' role is, and what the people's role is. Now check this out. John claims that Jesus is kind of this bridegroom. John is the friend of the bridegroom and I'm assuming that the people are the bride. I'll get to that in a minute. The, the job of the friend of the bridegroom, there's a technical term for it. It's called shushbin. Shushbin. Try and say that. Shushbin. Yeah, keep you awake somehow. It's hot. The shushbin's job was to ensure one major thing. That joy would be the central theme of the wedding ceremony. Okay? You're thinking, no big deal. But remember from the wedding at Cana that weddings could be three days to five days long. Now that's a lot of joy. There'd be like professional joy people that this Shoshbin would bring in. They, they would actually hire, not even hire, but you just basically just offer them food and wine for a week and they come and, and you, you guys, you got to be happy. And it's like a pep rally. And, and it's this, we postmoderns would think it sounds fake. But it wasn't fake. It was almost a discipline. You come in there and you're happy. And the same was true at funerals. You would have these mourners, just an aside, but that's why uh, you remember when Jesus raises the dead girl and uh, the people start laughing. And you're thinking, I, I don't know you, but I always think of that and say, who would laugh at a funeral? Well, these people weren't even connected to the family. They're hired mourners. Okay, So the Shoshbin is in charge of the joy. Now, all throughout the Old Testament, who's known as the bridegroom? God. Who's known as the bride? The people of God. I think that John is using this analogy for two reasons. Not only to show his identity, but more so to show Jesus' identity. He's linking Jesus with the position that God traditionally holds in the Old Testament. The bridegroom. Alright, now I found out something funky that's just really weird for our culture, but I feel like I need to share it. Because it's fun. Now the Shoshbin also had one other job. So weird. So he would be in charge of like the couple, the married couple, and on their wedding night, when you know, so he walks them to their love tent and makes sure that they get in there okay, and then he guards the door, and you know they they go, and then uh, when the act is consummated, when the bridegroom has united himself with the bride. He lets out this cheer like, I don't know what it's like. I don't know. Maybe howling at the moon or whatever. But he lets out the cheer and it gives great joy to the Shoshbin because the Shoshbin knows that everything is completed now. That the, the whole wedding act is on, right? And, and it's like joy. So now consider this. John the Baptist is saying that his joy is made full because why? What's Jesus doing? He's including people into the family of God. He's baptized. Jesus, the bridegroom, is breaking down walls of who gets to be the bride. And he's including all these new people in. The voice of the bridegroom means that he's made consummation. There's been union. There's, there's a new life ahead. And John the Baptist can rejoice in that. <laughs> that's, that's huge theology right there. 
Jesus has broken down the dividing walls. The things that kept people out, Jesus is breaking those walls down. He said, you don't need to look a certain way. You don't need to be a certain intelligence. You don't need to be a certain gender, a certain age. You just need to have faith in me. And that's reason to hoot and holler and to celebrate that union. John rejoices and he's glad to decrease as Jesus increases. But how can John be so sure? His disciples don't like this. His disciples, John's disciples think that he ought to be jealous. How can John the Baptist be so sure that Jesus is who he says he is? There's competing voices here, aren't there? How do we know truth? Well, sitting at Letter Street's Coffee this week, kind of working on this message, and I always scan the bookshelf. Anna and Kirsten have some great books in there that they got donated, and I see it. I see Homer's The Odyssey. And yes, I needed a little distraction, so I picked it up. I love that book. And... Lo and behold, let me, let me run down the story real quick. So, you know, Homer, the ancient Greek poet, supposedly wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. And doing no justice to the Iliad at all, basically about a bunch of guys who go and try and rescue Helen, and they go and beat up the Trojans. All right, So they go have this war. Remember, it's with Achilles, if you've seen Troy. Okay, so the, the Iliad, that's the Iliad. They go and they beat the Trojans. Now, they all sail back to Sparta, and Odysseus, one of the, the main dudes, from, uh, from Sparta also gets in a boat and he starts heading back. The Odyssey is a complete epic poem that chronicles Odysseus's travels back because he runs into all these adventures and perils and it takes him ten years to get from Troy back to Sparta. On his adventures, he meets an oracle. And the oracle warns him about all these perils he's going to come up against. And one of these perils are these sirens. Now, these sirens were mythical creatures. They were seductive women with wings. In fact, if you want to look at your worship folder cover, that picture is... depicting the sirens there, trying to lure this boat of men with Odysseus there. Um, Ulysses is the Roman name. That's actually the guy in the, on the mask. But anyway, so the oracle is warning him about these sirens. And this is what she says. And now pay particular attention to what I'm about to tell you. First you will come to the sirens who will enchant all who come near them. If anyone unwarily draws too close and hears the singing of the sirens, his wife and children will never welcome him home again. For they sit in a green field and warble him to death with the sweetness of their song. There's a great heap of dead men's bones lying all around with the flesh still rotting off them. So Odysseus learns this news that they're going to encounter this. And so immediately he tells the crew of his ship, guys, this is what she said. And now I'm picking up the story again. Odysseus says, I had hardly finished telling everyone of the men before we reached the island of the two sirens. Now I took a large wheel of wax and cut it, cut it up small with my sword. And then I kneaded the wax in my strong hands till it became soft. 
which I did uh, between the kneading and the rays of the sun god Hyperion. Then I stopped up the ears of my men. He put the wax in their ears. And they bound me hands and feet to the mast as I stood upright on the cross piece. But they went on rowing themselves. And when we had got within earshot of the land and the ship was going at a good rate, the sirens saw that we were getting in shore and began with their singing. And they were singing all these lies like, Oh, great Odysseus, come here. We'll give you wisdom and then you'll, you'll be sent on your way, the wisest of all the, the warriors. And so they're, they're just totally flattering him. And they sang these words most musically. And as I longed to hear them further, I made signs by frowning to my men that they should set me free. But they quickened their stroke. And Eurylochus and Permitides bound me still stronger with bonds till we got out of the hearing of the sirens' voices. And then my men took the wax out of their ears and they unbound me. Competing voices. The sirens had all of these lies, all of this cunning to steer Odysseus and his men off track. John's disciples, in a way, were kind of like the sirens. John had truth on his side. He knew who Jesus was. And they were trying to say, Why aren't you jealous? Any person in their right mind would want to defend what's theirs, your fame and popularity. And it begs the question to me, what are the competing voices in my life? What are the sirens in our lives? And <laughs> there's tons in my life. Um, a couple that I thought might be good general ones to discuss are, number one, success. At least success as it's defined in our culture. What is success in our culture? Bigger, better, faster, more amassing more toys so that we can enjoy life better. If I just get the next toy, the next boat or personal watercraft with lasers, as I said a couple weeks ago, that would make me happy. And the chainsaw too, yeah. Um, Thank you. With the book. Uh, You know, the old he who dies with the most toys wins idea. Success. Sex. You've got to have sex if you're going to be successful. Sex is almost viewed as a commodity nowadays. It's just something that we have for our own personal pleasure. And it's so idealized and idolized that it's... The idea of monogamy or abstinence, at least in much of our media, is almost ridiculous, right? How is success defined in the church? More people. Ah. I don't know how many well-meaning people that have real traditional church backgrounds that are in my life. Whenever they ask about the church, is it growing? How many people do you have now? I don't have any people. Right? I'm, by the way, I'm, I'm your servant. I'm one of you. You've called me out of the community to preach God's Word. That's all. We are the church. Right? And we are here by God's grace alone. Alright? So I don't get people. But that's one of the markers, isn't it? How many people do you have? How many programs are you running? How much income is coming in? How's the giving? I don't know if any of these ways, in fact, I don't think any of these ways of looking at success are God's ways. What about asking, are people becoming like Jesus? Are people being served by the church? 
are people outside the church, outside these walls, and outside of our little communities that we have, are they being blessed? Those would be good markers of success. Jesus, God in the flesh, shows us what God is like, doesn't He? And I'm just making a guess here, but I think God is probably successful, isn't He? I'm just saying, He kind of made us. So if God is successful, and Jesus is God in the flesh, that means success might be defined a little differently than our culture defines it. That would mean that success means sacrificial love. Another siren for me and probably many of you is performance. How do you rank compared to your peers? It's funny going going to the park with the kids and already to seeing them play with their little friends at three years old. They're already sizing each other up. Who's going to be the boss? Who can do what? Who's taller? Who's stronger? Always sizing each other up. Here's another lie. You are what you do. You are what your work is, what your profession is. Lies of the sirens. The problem with comparing ourselves is that we're always going to be better than somebody at something. And that just builds pride. And we're always going to be worse at something than somebody else which is going to lead to envy or depression or something. Here's the truth. You and I are made in God's image. He loves you more than you can possibly imagine because He made you and for no other reason than that. That's awesome news. He loves you whether you succeed or fail, whether you're big or small or man or woman or healthy or sick, smart or a bit slow in the uptake. I think that there's way too many sirens, too many conflicting voices to even mention today, but I hope this gets you stimulated. I'm sure you're thinking of your own sirens right now. The real question is, how do we navigate? How do we navigate the sirens? How does John the Baptist end up staying humble when he's got these competing voices saying, you should be jealous? And it's not just his disciples telling him he ought to be jealous. It's the whole culture that he lives in would say, he's got to be jealous. Well, from what I can tell in this scripture, the way John does it is that he follows a trustworthy voice. He follows a trustworthy voice. I'm I'm in verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. But he who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies. And no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal on this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Now, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Here's the pressing question. Whom do you trust? Whom do you trust? of all these sirens and competing voices. Jesus is from heaven, and John is saying he's got perspective that nobody else does, because everybody else is from earth. 
Now, as you know, my family and I love going to Mariners games, and Eric says I need to stop going because every time we've gone recently, they lose. But I think they, they just don't, they're not going to lose anyway. All right. Alright, so typically, like, we sit in the same spot every time. The cheap seats, section 193, row 1. So we're first row, but like 430 feet away. And from 430 feet, I think, I know balls and strikes better than the umpire. I will sit there and say, Boo! You know, that was a strike! I will yell from the outfield and call balls and strikes. Well, this last Monday, Corey and I got a little treat. Uh, one of uh, Corey's mom's co-workers has these season tickets, and they're right behind home plate. And we were able to snag a pair. And we went for the first time in three years without kids to a ball game. Awesome. No one dipping in my garlic fries or spilling my drink. Anyway. And let me tell you, from a few rows behind home plate, that's how you watch baseball. That's how you watch baseball. And I started to realize, like, oh my, I can't see anything from 430 feet out. That, I mean, I, I can see everything. And I, I happened to agree a lot more with the umpire, too, when I was sitting there. Now, this is a stretch, but if baseball, if life were like baseball, all of the sirens in our life, the competing voices, they're out in the center field bleachers trying to tell us how to live life. Jesus has got front row seats. I mean, he's like in the game, right? He's right there. He's from heaven. He has perspective that we don't have and that nobody else has. Now sometimes, certainly there are people who are not Christians at all and they have wonderful ideas and great truths come out of them. And of course, that, that makes a lot of sense because all truth is God's truth. But the question is, how do we know the difference? How do we know when Oprah has something good to say and when she doesn't? Well, I could probably help you with that. But Anyway, I'm not taking on Oprah here. Uh, how do we tell the difference between truth and what sounds good but may not be truth? Well, two major ways, and this might be cliche, but before you respond in scoffing, ask yourself how you're doing at these things. The first one is Scripture. How often do we refer... I'm, I'm in this boat too. How often do I refer to Scripture when I'm trying to discern truth? Actually go to the text. What does the Bible have to say about this? That would be a discipline I'm guessing we could all grow at. What does Scripture say about this? You know, like, you screw up something at work and your, your co-workers kind of rib you about it and you feel horrible. And you start to feel like, I'm a failure, I can't do anything. I'm not worth much. And then you go to Scripture and you realize that the God of the universe thinks you're worth so much He died for you. That would be a good way that Scripture could help correct you from the sirens, calling you off course. Calling you off course. But it's not... Uh, scripture is absolutely vital. But I'm not advocating just you and the Bible making up your, all the decisions and discerning truth by yourself. The Bible, as history tells, can be made to say about whatever you want. And that's why, number two, we need the church. And when I say the church, I'm not talking about the walls, and I'm not talking about the politics, I'm not even talking about the pastor. What I'm talking about is the us-ness. The church. We read scripture in community. We pray in community. Why? When I, you know, when I prepare these messages, 
I study the Scripture, I pray, and then I get an idea of what I think it might be about. But you know what else I do? I check with other wise people. I read commentaries from different times throughout the church history so that I'm making sure that I'm not going off in my own direction. And usually if I can get three reputable sources that say the same thing that I'm saying, I know I'm on pretty solid ground. And that's what it means to be reading Scripture in community. Odysseus wanted to so badly to get off that mast. He was telling his men, untie me. I want to follow the sirens. But it was his men who stood up and lashed him even tighter. We need each other. There's times when I am weak and I need you to prop me up and vice versa. And that's why I'm excited that starting this Sunday, we're going to have sign-ups for small groups over the summer small groups. Um, they're going to start in two weeks. So if you've been waiting for a small group, let me just take an aside. You go through that door after church to the left and there will be a table with that guy signing up. Thanks, dude. We need each other. We need each other. And just this, as wonderful it is, it's not enough. Uh, we need smaller and more intimate groups where we can lash each other to the mass sometimes and read scripture in community and pray for one another in community. So why is all this so important? You know, the whole Odyssey thing is a myth. It's a myth. There are no sirens that call us to these islands and you know our boat wrecks and we die. Well, it's a myth, but this is real. Verse 36 He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. When we hear the voice of Christ and we choose to obey the sirens, we're not just rejecting Jesus, we're rejecting life. The other way to say that is we're choosing death. That's what this verse says. When we choose to follow the sirens and not Jesus, we're choosing death. But the good news trumps all of that. The good news is that Jesus offers a way for every person to have eternal life. The good life. Eternal life isn't just when you die. Eternal life starts the minute you start following Jesus. It doesn't mean that your life's going to be hunky-dory and you're not going to have any problems. It means that Jesus is with us in those problems. He has compassion. Come means with. Passion means to suffer. So if Jesus is compassionate, it means He suffers with. Okay? And then we have life that never ends. That's the good news. He calls us as the voice from heaven, the voice with perspective, if you will, the voice from behind home plate. He bids us to come and trust Him. And I think that this message leaves us with only one thing, a question. Whom do we trust? Whom do we trust? Let's pray. Jesus, thank You so much for revealing Yourself to us. What a gift Scripture even is. What a gift is Your Spirit that helps us to to even be drawn to read Scripture and to have some kind of clarity about who You are. 
how much You love us. Lord, I confess that I believe with my mind that You have the great perspective. I believe in my mind that You know the best way to live. But oftentimes, like Odysseus, I ask to be unleashed from the mast. I ask and choose to follow the voices of sirens and their seductive ways. Lord, for those in this room who can identify with that, we ask Your forgiveness. We ask that You would blow on us afresh with Your Spirit. Give us the grace to pursue You. To turn around, to repent. To hold on to Your hand that You're stretching out to us. Help us to love Your truth. Like the psalmist who says, Your word is sweeter than honeycomb. Lord, I pray for our community here. Not only in our Sunday worship and our service projects, but also in the small groups that we'll be starting. I pray Your blessing over us, Lord, as we seek to do life together. Lord, won't those groups be places of life and truth and love and fun? Encounter us, Lord, as we seek You. We love You, famous one. In Christ's name, Amen.